So the book opens with a two-part introduction. First, a poem that begins, in the beginning, was the Word, an obvious allusion to Genesis 1, when God created everything with his Word. Now, a person's words, they're distinct from that person, but they're also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's Word was with God, that is distinct, and yet the Word was God, that is divine. And as we ponder this claim, we hear later in the poem that this divine word became human in Jesus. Then John goes on to draw from the stories of Exodus, saying that Jesus was God's tabernacle in our midst. The glorious divine presence that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant became a human in Jesus. Which leads to his last claim, that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Son, who has become human to reveal the Father to us. Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on us gathered here. Lord, take all of my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So what we're doing these first few weeks of the year is uh, in, in both the sermons on Sunday morning and the midweek podcast, we're going through the, the catechism that we have now, which lays out both the basics of Christian belief as well as the distinctives of Methodist belief. And so the first three weeks are sort of uh, the, the, the things that all Christians in all times and all places have agreed on, and then the next three weeks are the things that make Methodists unique. And the first part of those catechisms really focus on who God is and the persons of the Trinity. So last week we did the Father, and this week is the Son and the Spirit. So I've got a few different readings here for you this morning. The first two come out of John, and the first is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And next is from John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And in Mark 9, 2-8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
And then finally from Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week I talked about God creating and sustaining us. He designed us to be his image bearers in his creation. He made us with a purpose, and he gave us dominion and authority over all the rest of his creatures. We're meant to be connected to him. Channels through which his order and his goodness and his wisdom would flow into his creation. But instead we cut ourselves off from God. And we try to claim independence. We try to sever the connection. And to some extent, we succeeded. God still sustains us, but we're not following his will. We're not letting his goodness flow through us and out into the world that he made. And instead of bearing his image, we're trying to remake ourselves as we see fit. Trying to adopt whatever other image we want. And in doing so, we've cut off the rest of creation from him as well. All the world suffers as a result of human rebellion against God. When we say the world is broken, we mean it quite literally. Creation doesn't always function the way it was meant to because we've severed the connection between creation and creator. So the Father made us and he sustains us, but we distance ourselves from him and we distort the image of God into something grotesque. And the Son and the Spirit come to us to set these problems right. We have two problems. We've been separated from God, alienated, and even if we're reconciled to God, we are unable to do the things we must do in order to remain reconciled to God. So we say Jesus reconciles us to God. He ends the alienation between God and his people. God always offered forgiveness and mercy and grace, and those things are present throughout the Old Testament, right from the very beginning. The problem was never that God was unforgiving. The problem was that sin makes it dangerous for us to be in God's presence. Sin is death. Sin is chaos. And when we sin, we introduce these things into the world and they are fundamentally opposed to the God who gives life and brings order. And when the holy presence of the life-giving God who called order out of chaos encounters the stain of sin that brings death and chaos, the result is destruction. That was the point of all the sacrifices and all the purity rituals in the Old Testament. They made it safe for God's presence to be among his people. But only in that one place, for that one people. And even then, not all the time, because there are stories in the Old Testament where they don't follow the rules and they don't do what they're supposed to do, and they still try to get into God's presence, and it does not go well. 
What Jesus does in his death on the cross is he removes the stain of sin from the entire world. He makes it possible for anyone, anywhere to enter into God's presence. He reconciles us to God. But he doesn't stop there. He rose bodily from the dead. His physical body lived again. And it's important to make that distinction. It's not he came back to life. He's not undead like a zombie. He went through death and came out the other side alive again. And stop and think about what this means for a minute. Because the implications are a whole lot deeper than just we get to live forever. If we will be resurrected just like him, we will get back everything that we lose. See, we all will lose things in this life. In fact, we all are going to lose everything. We'll lose loved ones. We will lose our health. We will lose our mobility. We will lose our independence. We will lose all of our friends. We will lose all of our families. We'll all lose our parents when they die. And when we die, in that moment, we will lose our children and our spouses. Every single thing we have in this life, we are going to lose. All your wealth, all your possessions, everything. It will be gone. It will be taken from you. You cannot avoid it. It is inevitable. It will happen. And Christians throughout history and all over the world today still lose husbands and wives and children and limbs and digits in the name of following Jesus. Because they know their losses are not permanent. They know they'll get everything and everyone back in the resurrection. That is world-changing stuff right there. To know that you, like everyone else, will lose everything, but it won't matter because you'll have it back. All the people who've gone before, you'll have them back. And his work didn't stop the day he rose from the dead either, as if that wasn't enough. That's not the end of the story. He ascended into heaven, where even now he intercedes on our behalf before the throne of God. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest. In the temple, the job of the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was, and pray for the people. To bring all their intercessions right there, right in front of God, and pray for them. That was the whole point of having a high priest, was you had one person who could get direct access to God and offer up prayers for all the people praying for their forgiveness of their sins, praying for their protection, praying for their health, for their well-being, all of it, lifting it up directly to the throne. That's the high priest's job. And that's what Jesus does for us now. Your name is on his lips right now. He is asking God to forgive you. He's asking God to heal you. He's asking God to bless you, to prosper you. And he's sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, extending a bit of heaven down into each one of us. Because even though we're reconciled to God, even though Jesus purified us, and even though God has forgiven us, we are still sinners. We are still imperfect. 
we are still bent towards sinning. And in fact, very often, we're still unaware of our sins. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't just rest on us believers, right? He doesn't just guide us once we're already following Jesus. God is not content to wait for us to come to him. The Holy Spirit spreads throughout the world, throughout all of humanity, calling everyone to repent and turn back to God. It's not just on us to go tell people about Jesus. Jesus is telling people about Jesus. The Holy Spirit goes before. He's present around everyone, whether they realize it or not, calling them to repent and turn back. See, it's the Holy Spirit who leads us to God in the first place. It's the Holy Spirit who convinces us of our sin and leads us to repentance. These aren't things that you and I can do. I don't care how well you know your Bible. I don't care how smart you are or how convincing an argument you can make. You will never convince an argument alone a non-believer to turn to Christ. It will not work. Guarantee it. What they can't deny, what can't be stopped, is the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. When people encounter the presence of God and their eyes are open to it, and they see God at work in their lives, doing things that can't be explained as anything other than God doing something, that's when they're changed. That's why it matters to pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out onto people. So it matters for us to embrace that idea, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of our church. And frankly, most of us would probably never be fully convinced of our own sin if it weren't for the Holy Spirit telling us things. Because we can hear stuff from all kinds of people about what we're like, and we won't believe it. Or we'll disagree with it. Or we'll say, well, that's just how I am. But the Holy Spirit works in our hearts deep down to convince us that we're not as great as we think we are. That in fact we have some sin to repent of, even now. And very crucially, it's only the Holy Spirit who does this. It is not my job or your job to convince someone that they're a sinner. And there may be times when you are prompted by the Spirit to rebuke somebody. But that's not quite the same thing. Because when he does that, they already know. They just need someone to give them a little push. But our job is not to convince people that they're sinners or to go tell them all what horrible people they are because they're living in sin and it's just terrible and you're all going to go to hell. That's not our job. Our job is to love people as Jesus loves them. Full stop. Because that creates the opening for the Holy Spirit to go to work. And we love them as Jesus loves them and then we simply trust that the Spirit is going to do His work. That it's up to him, not us. That as long as we continue loving them like Jesus loves them, everything will be okay. We don't need to be their moral conscience for them. We can simply love a person and trust that the Spirit will work on them. It may not happen as fast as we would like. 
especially when they're people like friends and close family. You all just came back from the holidays. I know you've got some family you'd like to rebuke in their sin. (laughs) But it's not up to us. It's up to the Spirit. Because, see, it's only God who can convince a non-believer that God is real. It's only God who can convince a skeptic that God is real. And that's not hypothetical or theoretical. I've seen it. I've seen what happens when a person actually encounters the Holy Spirit doing something that can't be explained as anything other than God must be real. And it's a lot more effective than me sitting there and trying to explain why they should believe in this. Let God do the talking and it works out a lot better. Only God can convince a non-believer that he's real and only God can prove to us the reality of our sin, yes, but also the inconceivable depth of his love for us. I wish I had brought a different thing than mayonnaise to use because apparently that wasn't popular with the kids. But, <laughs> but we all know, we all know oil and water can't mix. Everyone knows it. And yet we all use things in our daily lives that are mixtures of oil and water. Maybe you don't like mayonnaise, but if you eat salads, you've had oil and water mixed together in a way that stays together. Just because two things on the surface level seem to be incapable of mixing doesn't mean you're out of luck. You just need to add something else. You have to add an emulsifier. A substance that has the unique ability to connect to both oil and water on the molecular level. To bind them together permanently. But the thing is, the moment you do that, you no longer have oil and water. You have something completely different. Something unrecognizable. The texture, the color, the smell, the taste, it's all different now. And if you didn't sit there and watch it being made, you would never guess what the original ingredients were. It's become something greater than the sum of its parts. That really is what Jesus does with us. And yes, I just called you all mayonnaise. (laughs) Jesus is the emulsifier. He's the one who brings together God and humanity, who otherwise cannot mix. And once he does that, we are fundamentally changed by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We become someone different. We are a new creation in Christ, a human with God dwelling in our hearts. See, that is how God saves us. That is how God first reconciles us to him, removing the alienation, the separation that cuts us off from God. And once he does that, once we recognize that God has enabled us to come back into his presence, he moves in. He lives within us. Precisely so that we don't have to rely on our own power to stay true. We can now rely on him. He has bound us to God permanently. And in doing so, he has made us something different and unrecognizable to what came before. Thanks be to God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.